Hello, hello. Welcome to a brand new episode of the SaaS Prince podcast, the podcast for content marketers in SaaS. And I'm your host, Yag. In today's episode, we are going to discuss product messaging frameworks from ideation to execution and measuring outcomes. To discuss this with us, we have Anthony Peary, who is now a household product marketing name in the LinkedIn community. For those who might not know him, Anthony helps early stage product-led startups market their products with clear messaging and product positioning along with his partner, Rob Kaminsky under the brand Fletch PMM. If you're on LinkedIn and have seen the Figma design frameworks explaining the messaging of Calendly, Loom, Slack and more, then you absolutely know who Anthony is. So without any further ado, hey ho, let's go. Anthony, my man, how are you? Super happy to have you here. Super glad to be on. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you know, for people listening, we actually met a couple years ago um, on LinkedIn and and we had a meeting and then reconnected multiple years later. And then I was like, is this the same guy who I actually had a video call with two years ago? And then it was. So yeah, super glad we reconnected again. No, absolutely. My pleasure. And I love what you're doing with product marketing and the way you're simplifying it for the world. So I'm sure this is going to be a great conversation. Right. So let's get going. You know, I'm a sucker for frameworks. I love the way you promote this idea of, for example, minimum viable positioning. So I think that would be a great place to start. A lot of companies, you know, especially the horizontal SaaS ones that solve multiple problems, get into this mode of being an all-in-one solution way too early. And sometimes I do empathize with these founders because they also don't want to be pigeonholed into something way too specific, way too niche, because probably they have a broader vision going forward. So how would you go about this process of arriving at a minimum viable positioning with such founders? Great question. So yeah, even just to level set a little bit, when we think about positioning, when Robert and I work with companies, really the end-to-end positioning is eight different elements. Four of these elements are related to the product and four of them are related to the market. And so if you are working with a traditional Mad Lib style positioning statement template, it's usually going to be a variation on these eight elements. And so for us, those eight elements are for the market side, it's a persona. This is like who's going to be using it. Um, and we live in the uh, the B2B world. We don't really do much with B2C. So B2C probably looks slightly differently. But for B2B companies, you really have a persona. And we use that word very, very broadly. It has a lot of connotations of, you know, the soccer mom who you know gets up <laughs> and takes it. Well, that's not how we're using it. We're just using it as a catch-all word to describe either a role like marketing director or a team, marketing team, like the, or like the whole department. So um, if someone has a better word than persona, please tell me because I've gotten dinged by people on, on LinkedIn. That's not really a person. I'm like, I know, I know. I'm just working on it. Um, so really, it's like, who's, who are we talking to? Are we talking to an individual, a team? Is this the decision maker? Is this the buyer? Is this the user? Um, so, so you have persona. You have a type of company. So that could be the industry. That could be the size, SMB or enterprise. It could be a revenue amount. Um, all different ways that you can slice up what type of company you're going after. Um, and then you have two really important boxes that a lot of people don't put in is what context are these people in? And this loosely aligns with jobs to be done, but we stay away from that because there's so many different nuances to it. People think different things. There's whole two different 
ways to even do it. So we use this catch-all box that like context. What are they doing today without your product in the mix? What are they trying to accomplish? How are they like just operating? And then the last piece of those uh, of the market side is the problem. So you have a person in a type of company who's doing things in a certain way that's leading to an issue. And these problems are barriers to progress. They're frustrating, all sorts of different pieces. That end-to-end -end is like the entire market segment that you're going after. Then you have on the bottom, you have the product. And the product can be explained in four dimensions. What category are you in? We like to say, like, what's the shelf at the grocery store that you live on? Are you spicy mustard versus regular mustard and you stand out on an existing shelf? Or are you going and being like, no, I've created a whole new condiment. You need to create a whole new shelf just for me. Um, and like the whole category creation piece. So there's that. And then there's features, capabilities, and benefits. Most people just talk about features and benefits. Yeah. And that gets really, really wishy-washy of like, well, is this feature actually a benefit and vice versa? So we actually brought in this product capability concept as sort of the bridge. So if the feature is the technical part of the product, the capability is what do I do with it? How do I actually put it into action? And then the benefit is what is the outcome of using that capability? And it's usually when you leave the product and go into the real world of does it drive some sort of metric up? Does it remove the problem altogether? Um, and so you have these features, capabilities, and benefits. So to get the end-to-end -end positioning for a startup, is ex especially a horizontal startup, is extremely difficult. Yeah. Because what it assumes is you've already tested lots of these different segments, and you've narrowed it down to some specific ICPs. If you are early stage, so all the way up to probably Series A, sometimes even Series B, you don't necessarily know who your ICP is. So a lot of these founders we work with will look at stuff that um, big names like April Dunford. She's great. Um, I'm a huge fan. Me and Rob talk a lot about what she does. She even says, you know, I'm for a little bit later stage startup. Yes. If you're too early and you don't have the data. She even said, I think on your podcast, she was like, you're kind of doing like this partial positioning or like, you know, like we'd say half assed if I can swear. <laughs> um, but really what we would call that is this minimum viable positioning. And it's essentially... What is the smallest amount of information that I can be certain about enough that I can actually have a solution that people would remember? So like positioning is very much how do I, you know, like inception style, put my product in your mind and so that you know what it does and who it's for. And so Rob and I have been on this year long journey. This is kind of a funny story to tell, but we've been on this like year long journey trying to build these frameworks from scratch. And it took us a year to realize Minimum viable positioning for a startup, you really need one element from the market side and one element from the product side. And when we when we finally came to that realization, to get enough that you could be like spread through word of mouth, um, people would know when to think of you, you really need one element from both sides. And then we both stopped and we just started laughing because we're like, it's literally in our title, product marketers product and market we were like what are people trying to get they're trying to get product market fit so you need both so we were like it took us a year to basically just look at the name of our title and realize that's what we kind of needed from from both sides so minimum viable positioning is really what can i know for certain from the top row which is all about the market and what can i know about for certain from the the bottom row that's uh, all about the product and when you co combine these pairs it allows you to test with lots of different segments. So a horizontal company, they might anchor on the problem 
that is shared by lots of different types of companies. Um, for example, Loom. Loom was a, um, early on, they positioned themselves as a better way of uh, taking meetings. Like rather than having a meeting that's gonna waste time, you're gonna actually record a video instead and send it to your uh, the people on your team. So they would anchor on the problem of meetings are terrible, which is shared by tons of different personas, company types, for all sorts of different reasons. They anchor on the problem and then they anchored on the capability, which is send videos uh, quickly from your desktop, like record yourself and your screen at the same time to basically remove the problem of, of, the, uh, of the meetings being so tiresome. So that minimum viable positioning allowed Loom to go and sell their service to a bunch of different people without everyone having to see all eight elements filled out. Now, the funny thing is that eventually, startups, as they get bigger, they will graduate from minimum viable positioning and they will start layering on segment-based positioning. So a horizontal company, especially, if you go on Loom's website, they have like a solutions tab that is, here's how sales teams use it. Here's how marketing teams use it. Um, and even a better example is Asana. If you look at Asana, they have a little tab that says, why Asana? And they've essentially sliced up the market from every possible way that you can imagine. And they have these full fleshed out positionings for each of the different segments. Um, they, sometimes you still retain that minimum viable positioning up top, but now you fleshed it out with your different ICPs because you actually have had the time and the energy um, and the resources to go and put these messages in front of people. But the minimum viable positioning is really like a hack at the beginning to be able to, what can I do? Well, everything is still so uncertain. I'm not quite ready to choose a type of company or an industry or a, a role even, but I still need to go out and test and I can't just do, uh, we, we always laughed. Early on, Airtable had a, uh, one of, Airtable's an extremely horizontal product. They had, their tagline was, connect everything, achieve anything which is so broad, it doesn't tell me anything about what it is. And then you even would scroll through their website and each different um, block was essentially that. It was like organizational excellence. Like it was all these buzzwords and you read the whole page. You're like, I don't know what this is. So that's like anti-positioning. So really getting at least one thing about the market broadly, it could be the shared problem, a shared context, a shared industry, one of those different elements. And then one thing about your product. And I like to use the example of like uh, DuckDuckGo, was very much like a search engine for people who valued privacy. So it's like, there's your two, product category, and then the piece from the uh, market segment was really like the persona, like the type of person. It's someone who cares about privacy. So long-winded answer to a simple question, but hopefully uh, clear. So you explained about uh, you know how you would use uh, one from the product side and one feature, I mean, one thought process from the market side. And um, so what would you typically anchor your positioning based on? Would you focus more on pain? Would you focus on persona? Where would you typically start? Yeah, so it really is different startup to startup. And it's kind of a consequence of two different factors. On the market side, it's really a consequence of awareness. So, you know, the five stages of awareness, maybe it's six, uh, problem unaware, problem aware, solution aware, uh, or sorry, pro yeah, solution aware, product aware, then most aware. So that's kind of like, where do they live in that, in that end-to-end -end trajectory. And then on the product side, it really is a function of product category maturity. So if you're in a very mature product category, you likely will want to lead with that because that's gonna be the most easily understood by the end uh, user or whoever it is that you're trying to sell to. 
If you're in an immature product category, you likely don't want to lead with the product category because people won't know what it means. Like I like to use the example yeah. of Uber. In the early days of Uber, Uber was doing something brand new. Ride sharing as a category hadn't really solidified. And so for them to call themselves a ride sharing uh, app or whatever would have done a disservice to the people trying to get it. They wouldn't have understood what that meant. Rather, they would lead with the capability, which is like the unlock. I can click a button on my phone and a car comes and picks me up, takes me where I want to go. That's much more clear than saying ride sharing in the early days. In the same way, a, a company like Airtable, which we mentioned, they position themselves slightly differently for two different audiences. For prosumers, they call themselves a more complex database or sorry, a more complex spreadsheet, like an advanced spreadsheet. So they anchored right. on that product category spreadsheet, which was uh, clear to people they knew what to expect. And when they talked to the database people, they called themselves like a simplified SQL database, I'm pretty sure. So when you're talking about which you choose from the product side, it really is a function of do people understand this product category or not? And if they don't, we probably need to lead with either a feature, a benefit, or a capability. And picking between those three is sort of a art at this point. We want to try to make it more of a science. But we don't. We're not quite there yet. Uh, (laughs) it's really like you kind of just look at the three of them and say, which one of these will get it across the easiest. So for example, um, there's a guy on LinkedIn. He promises to get you 20,000 LinkedIn followers, I think in a year or something like that. That's the benefit, the outcome of working with them. So he could probably lead with, I help people get, you know, LinkedIn influencers get 20,000, um, followers in a year. And that would be more helpful than saying, I'm going to help you write posts and, whatever, because it actually is going to frame the discussion in the right way. Yeah. So there's not yeah. a, a one size fits all. It's definitely different combinations depending on who you're going after. And then um, even on the on the top side of the market, right, it's going to be what is the most specific I can get while still being broad enough to test different segments. So if that's like, I know for sure this product is for a specific industry, but I'm not sure which teams are going to use it the most. I'm not sure what's my entry point going to be, who's my champion, all that stuff. You'll probably want to choose the company type because if you say we're for the, um, you know, mining industry, that's at least a little bit more specific than uh, something else could be. Or if it's a very, very big, painful problem, you're not, let's say you're not industry specific, you're more horizontal. Maybe it's really the problem because most people feel that same problem um, in like a very similar way. So kind of art at this point, but it really is you're trying to maximize for clarity. What's going to have uh, the best chance of sticking in the minds of our people we're trying to reach and allow them to spread our message word of mouth while still being open enough that we can test different segments without prematurely turning off whole groups of people. Right. No, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Um Let's let's do one thing, you know. Let's let's look at translating this minimum viable story into, say, a web page. And if my memory serves me right, I think uh, you believe that web pages typically go through four stages, from say product marketing to conversion. So maybe you know, if you can take us through those four stages, and uh, more importantly, talk about the goals that one needs to achieve at each stage, so that this positioning can actually take effect on that page. Exactly. So when we talk about positioning, and then Positioning to us, if it doesn't get actualized in an asset, it's kind of useless. So sometimes that asset is an internal document that is mainly for hiring and employees to understand what's going on. That's fine. That's still getting used. But we think the most powerful positioning is for the market and it gets actualized in things like web pages, sales decks, um, 
ads content, right? And it gets fleshed out. Not saying that every yeah, single piece yeah. of those has to show your end-to-end -end positioning, but across those elements, you should get an understanding of who the product is. Because otherwise, the whole idea of positioning your product in the market, like if you can't find the positioning in the out in the public, it's it's probably not working. Um, so when we're thinking about building a web page, it's almost like taking this positioning and moving it into that messaging category. So these four stages across. The first stage really is the product marketing stage. And it's answering these fundamental questions. What are we trying to say? Who are we saying it to? And why are we saying it? And those loosely map to your messaging, your positioning, and your go-to-market strategy um, as a whole. And they frame the discussion around what types of features do we highlight? Which ones do we not highlight? What types of problems do we talk about? Which ones do we not talk about? What types of groups of people are we anchored on? Is this a landing page for a specific segment? Or is it really more of a homepage message that's for a whole market, which is a collection of segments? So all these fundamental questions change what you're actually going to show on the page. And you have to get this piece right before you can move on to these other more common stages, which are copywriting. And that's essentially how you say what you say. Design, which is how do you lay it out in the clearest way? What types of interactions do you use? Um, what types of animations and images and brand and all that stuff? Copywriting and, and design are extremely important. But if you don't know the first fundamental questions, you're going to go off track almost immediately. And then yeah. this last stage is really the conversion rate optimization, which is how do you use data, usage data, over multiple months to actually make this better? So very early stage startups, a lot of times can't really benefit from a lot of the traditional CRO practices like A-B testing, uh, multivariate testing, all that stuff, because they just don't have enough traffic. So a lot of times we're like, you kind of have to live in the shoot from the hip, um, do it by the gut, less of data, more qualitative rather than quantitative. But as you get bigger and you're launching pages and you're a ma like a massive company that has hundreds of thousands, if not millions of page views, you really can do this ongoing conversion rate optimization. And sometimes even in the CRO process, you have to revisit those earlier stages to get it right. So all the stages kind of morph together and you kind of want to be working in the same vein. Um, but you really do need to make sure that you haven't neglected one of the stages. And most people will neglect the first one. They'll say, I want to do a rebrand and I want to make my homepage look way better. And they commission a designer and then they tell someone on their team, start writing up the copy. And if it's a good copywriter, they will immediately ask, well, what are the answers to these product marketing questions? And a lot of times they will say, well, I hired you. You're the copywriter. You figure it out. Not realizing that there's a fundamental distinction between how you phrase something and who you choose to even give the message to in the first place. Yeah. No, I love this answer on multiple levels because one is very few companies realize that product marketing is the one that needs to own the message house, which gets translated into, say, your copies and all of that. But but here's something, you know, based on what you said, I um, probably I would like to slightly go on a different tangent and ask you this. Let's say when we are talking about a particular solution for, say, you know, a specific set of audience, like say for finance people, for CFOs, the story is very clear what we need to say. But when you look at a homepage, there is a tendency for people to, you know, try and talk about, we have this holistic all-in-one solution that does all of these things. So how do you make sure that, let me talk about one thing very specific, but also be sure that it's going to resonate with a lot of other people as well. Yep. So it really comes down to, are the people that you're going after shopping for an all-in-one solution? 
And here's a here's a shorthand. Are they in the Fortune 100? If not, they may not be looking for an all-in-one solution. The effect, like the positives of going all-in-one, really come into play with very large enterprises. So if I'm an enterprise company with 10,000 employees, every additional tool that we bring on creates immense overhead of vetting the company, making sure they're going to be all good with security, and then potentially onboarding and upskilling and training tens of thousands of people on how to use it. And then we also lose, when you're using different solutions as an enterprise company, you lose a lot of the um, connected data. So like they might have to build custom integrations to get these things to talk to each other, um, which lo you lose like data fidelity doing that sometimes. It's not quite as good. So all the benefits of an all-in-one solution are really at the largest end of either mid-market or true enterprise companies. They care about all-in-one because it makes their lives easier. And the trade-offs are usually if you do an all-in-one solution, you're going to have worse point solutions as part of it. It'll do task management. It'll do time tracking. It'll do resource management, but it won't really do any of them great. But the benefits of being all-in-one outweigh the negatives of the user experience. Versus if you're a mid-market company and smaller, you likely are like, I want to use the best task management tool. And that might not be the same as my invoicing tool or whatever it is. We might actually have to, we could be fine with using multiple different solutions to increase the user experience for all of our people actually using them. So a lot of times what I see is that companies that are selling all-in-one solutions, especially startups, what they're trying to do is pretend that that reality doesn't exist, the one that I just said. And they're basically saying, I don't have product market fit with this, this specific product. I don't have product market fit with this specific product. And I don't have product market fit with this specific product. Maybe if I bundle them all together, that will create a sudden product market fit, which almost always is not the case. Big all-in-one platforms are built over years and years and decades where essentially it's like we had one product that really knocked it out of the park. We added on a separate product that completely knocked it out of the park. And over time, we built this platform that services this end-to-end -end solution and we've moved up into the enterprise and we're really killing it as an all-in-one platform. Startups try to jump to the end. And so what they end up doing is they create these very, very uh, not very compelling solutions and they put all in one on their page and hope that these mostly mid-market companies are going to care and they really just don't care. So for us, we're like, all right, if you're sales led from the beginning and you're trying to solve a specific problem for the enterprise and you know that they're looking all in one, then yeah, lean into the all in one, do that. For everyone else, if you have multiple features, what we say is that you should sequence when you share these features. Figure out what is the main pain point or the main trigger moment that makes someone use your product. When you look around and you actually start interviewing your customers, I would wager a lot of money that these people are coming on your page, not looking for your whole platform, which creates, like when I was saying all those benefits of all-in-one for mid-market, when they see an all-in-one platform, they think, oh, I don't have time to figure out 50 different things. I'm going to have to figure out, do we have to cut this tool? And I'll just do this later. This is going to be too big and too annoying. It's the exact opposite thing that the people are hoping. They're thinking, oh, if we can get them to go wall to wall from day one, it'll be great. This is why product-led growth has been so powerful. It's because it takes these larger all-in-one platforms and shrinks them down to something bite-sized to say, 
just try out this one little feature. And I like this analogy of uh, like if you go to a restaurant and there's someone standing outside the restaurant with a sample platter, it's usually just the best selling item. It's not here's our entire menu. Try everything. It's try the thing that we know. If you like this, you're really going to like everything else in there. So it's sequencing it and basically trying to figure out what's the trigger moment, leading with that on the homepage. And then when they get into the product or even into the sales cycle and more stakeholders get in, you can start talking about, we also do this function and this function and this feature and this capability, which will maybe help you close the sale, but it's not going to help the person take that first step. You want to minimize the, the whole conversion rate game is minimizing a giant product and showing just the most impactful and compelling things because you know you're just trying to get them to take the call or to try the free trial or whatever it is. So don't overburden them with all this cognitive load and and uh, different things that bring in different stakeholders even to just try the free trial. Just get them into the free trial or get them on the sales call and then you can sequence the rest of it. No, I love this. Uh, this immediately reminded me of your LinkedIn post where you had shown KFC saying that they say, hey, try this one. They're not giving you the menu card. That's perfect. But, you know, here's also an interesting opposite analogy that came into my head. Uh, as you were talking about this, the first brand that I was thinking about was ClickUp. Okay. So ClickUp's messaging started with something like one app to replace them all. Okay. And I, Melissa was the first guest on the show. And uh, interestingly, when they came up with that story, it was not even, you know, they did not have an all-in-one solution actually. But interestingly, it worked out in the long run for them and it has panned out. Is it that some companies, because that was fresh at that point, it took off or uh, did they get lucky? What do you think really happened there? There's a couple of hypotheses, right? Me, and me and Rob, we always go to the edge cases when we're like, this is generally true. And ClickUp is usually the one we think of that's like, well, what about ClickUp, <laughs> right? Um, or, or like Monday.com as a similar thing as yeah, ClickUp where yeah. they're basically spread across. A couple of things. I'm pretty sure if I'm not getting confused, hopefully I'm not thinking of Monday and it is true of ClickUp. If I remember, ClickUp spent more money on marketing than a lot of companies in the early stage. They were pouring money into YouTube ads um, that basically were selling different pieces of the overall platform to different groups um, at the, in, in the org at the same time. So most startups don't have the level of money and even the brand chops in-house to be able to execute that type of strategy. So you can always find these edge cases. And I think ClickUp is a good example of did it. But um, I actually was talking to the, the founder of a company called Ignition. And he, we were talking about these cycles of bundling and unbundling. And software moves back and forth like this, where essentially you have uh, the big monolithic companies that dominate in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then point solutions coming in saying, you hate using them, use my point solution. It's just this piece of it, but way better. And you have this unbundling era. And then for a while, people are doing the unbundling era. And what ends up happening is now we've got 25 tools we're paying for. They don't talk to each other. And then people yeah. come along and say, we're going to bundle them together. And then they create a bundle. And then they get so big that everyone hates them. And then the unbundling starts again. And it's a, it seems <laughs> like a never-ending cycle. So I think that ClickUp was probably right place, right time combined with really strong branding, really strong marketing chops and huge amounts of venture capital money to pour into these content marketing and, and uh, brand marketing pieces. Again, that's me from the outside. Someone from ClickUp could say that was completely wrong and I would I would change my tune. But that that's what I, at least how I perceived what happened there. 
Right. No, absolutely makes sense. And as a bootstrap person, I hundred percent agree that uh, you know we'll never have the money to pour in that much. So it it let's rather do something that's feasible and appeals to the common sense. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So um, let's now go into this phase where you as a PMM are you know uh, once you have built this content and you're you're getting into working. And one of the interesting aspects that I've often seen in my experience in the past when I've been a PMM per se is that there's often a lot of friction when you start working with the branding person, right? So somebody in charge of branding comes in, they have a different set of goals. And as a PMM, you have your positioning, you have your set of goals. I would love to understand what is the point of intersection? You know, what typically uh, should be the goals for both of them and how can they collaborate better? I, I did a post about this actually. Branding and product marketing are essentially doing two opposite things, which is why they can kind yeah. of get confu- uh, like, you know, butt heads a little bit. Brand's yeah. goal is to make product and the company seem much larger than they actually are. So Nike is not just selling shoes. Nike is selling, you can be be like an athlete. You can be this active person, the self-actualized. That's all brand. It's taking yeah. something that's very down to earth, a shoe, and giving it this story that's much larger. Founders, in my opinion, most founders are much more brand-oriented people than they are product marketing-oriented people. The founders go out and sell the story that we are going to change the world. We're going to dominate this industry and that industry, and we're fundamentally altering how people do X, Y, and Z. That's the story that raises money. Investors love this story. But um, as Emily Kramer has pointed out, less than 1% of investors have a marketing background. And founders, if you think about the traditional duo of founders, it's usually a builder and a seller. And the builder is the very technical person. And the seller is really selling this vision. So nobody is thinking about it from a marketing perspective in the early days. And I would go even more specifically, no one is thinking about it from a product marketing perspective. If you say, I'm trying to sell this vision, customers often in the early days do not care about that vision. Branding is sort of, to me, like the final stage of differentiation. In the early days, when you don't really have competitors as a startup, you differentiate based on the context of your of your target audience. You're not like, we're so much better than X, Y, and Z solutions. Usually you're like, we're better than the spreadsheet you're using and the intern that you've hired to do this manual, blah, blah, blah. We're way better than that. So you differentiate based on the context. Then as the market category matures a little more, you start differentiating against competitors directly. And you say, well, yeah, those guys they do things this way and that's going to lead to this problem, but we do it this way and it's way better. And then eventually when you get big enough, and now we're talking about the top five companies in any consideration set, they're really differentiating on brand. Whose story do I as a person resonate with most? Like Google and Microsoft at a company level are not competing from a product marketing perspective. They're competing from a brand perspective. Do I, yeah. do I believe in the ethos of Google or do I believe more in Meta or do I believe more in Apple or whatever it is? But in the early days, it really is this product marketing piece where I was saying, so to get back to it, branding makes the product and the company seem bigger than they actually are. Product marketing actually makes it seem smaller than they actually are. So for example, I love to use the example of like a Fathom is a uh, meeting recording uh, tool. On Fathom's site, if you go to fathom.video, they describe themselves as an AI meeting assistant. I even think they could call it, you know, a meeting buddy, like a, a little friend that comes on and helps you out. I guarantee you, 
that the founder and the anyone in brand would not like saying this giant like we're changing the industry of how you record and transcribe and you know calling it a meeting assistant or a meeting buddy is probably not going to make them super excited and i've been on calls with these founders where it's the vp of marketing or the head of marketing and the founder and and we're saying this type of thing and as we're getting more and more smaller and smaller and smaller i'm watching the founder die inside they're just like slumping <laughs> down and they're like i spent the last 10 years building an ai meeting buddy like no that can't be true i've i'm changing the world but what you're doing is you're making it small enough for someone to purchase it because nobody wants to buy changing the world changing the industry especially if you're a no name company you're not nike you're not apple you're not in the top fortune 100 they don't want to buy your vision they want to buy the fact that Fathom at the top of my menu bar, when I have a meeting come up, it says your meetings in 25 minutes. That's what they want to buy. Cause that actually is going to solve a problem for them. I'm always missing my meetings. Oh my gosh, this thing just pops up in the menu. It tells me it's coming up. That's amazing. I'll download it. You're trying to get it small enough that they'll try it. They'll put it in their pocket. They'll actually give it a run. Um, and then you can over time expand the vision of what it can do. Oh, did you know Fathom also records all of your calls? Do you know it actually transcribes them? Actually, if you use it as your whole team, you can actually start finding like what's working and what's not working. It'll measure the objections and it's almost like a mini gong. So the vision can spread, uh, can spread over time as, you, as I use it more. But product marketing to me is really shrinking the product as small as possible so that people are gonna get over the hump to take the demo or try the product if it's more of a PLG motion. I never thought about, uh, you know, branding and product marketing as expanding and shrinking. I think that's a whole new perspective I got from this conversation. I absolutely love it. You know, I'm going to um, probably now take this to the content side. Okay. And I want to bring up an example with you. As a content marketer, you know, I strongly believe in product-led content where you showcase how you go about solving a problem. And here's my personal biggest gripe, right? So a lot of people assume that showcasing the product per se means being self-serving, which is not, okay? So I'll give you an example. Um, I love this company called Avoma. And Avoma is this only conversation intelligence product in the industry that has an AI coaching assistant. Now, here's, here's where the story becomes really, really interesting. Now, the point is, what this makes a difference compared to any other product is majority of the people, 75% of the companies where they use a conversation intelligence tool, the salespeople don't listen to all the calls because say typically a sales team has about 10 A's. They are doing five demos a day, 50 calls a day. I cannot listen to 50 calls. Now these guys are saying that all I do is this AI listens to all these calls and scores these and now you just have to look at the calls that are performing low so that you know how to coach. Now, in your view, would you showcase this product and talk about the capabilities as how it's solving it? Or, you know, are you, would you go to this quarter inch hole instead of the drilling machine selling? Yeah, I am 100% a fan of showing what the product does and how it solves specific problems. Me and Robert, our product is essentially our framework of how we approach this. And we've grown our audiences, both of us collectively, to several tens of thousands of followers by showing the framework. We've ungated right. it. You can see exactly what we do. 
Um, so I always lean that direction. And in, even in your example, I think the more compelling piece is the how and the what, not necessarily these outcomes, these benefits of you're going to have, you know, 5x your ROI and stuff like that. Because what people don't understand is that consumers and and champions of B2B companies, they don't shop for KPIs, Right. The person says, we need a 25% bump in X. Internally, the teams will say, how are we going to achieve that 25% bump? And they're going to filter for, do we need to hire an agency? Do we need to get a new product? If it is a product, what type of product do we think is going to do that? Is it going to be a conversational intelligence platform? Um, Is it going to be a sequencing tool that does better email sequences at scale? And so what they're going to do is they're going to filter down to a specific type of tool or service that is going to drive the KPI. And then they're going to go look and say, all right, well, let's say I've landed on, I think a conversational intelligence tool is what's missing and what's going to get us that 25% boost. Now, when they go and start looking at these companies, when all of the companies just say, we'll give you a 25% boost, they've already come to that conclusion themselves that the KPI is going to be met by getting this type of tool. And so what you actually can do in this moment is not sit and talk about all the ROI because they've already come looking for that is to actually show why would you choose Avoma over, you know, any of the other competitors. And that's talking about features and capabilities. It's saying no one else does it this way. You already think that this is going to give you the benefit. No one else does it this way, which is why it actually works better than theirs. Uh, the other solutions do. And so when you frame it that way, you actually instantly stand out versus leading with ROI. I actually did a a whole post once where I had six different companies that were targeting salespeople and revenue teams, six very different types of tools that did very different things. One was like an email tool. One was a lead scoring tool. One was a product that sales platform. And they all had the identical H1 and H2 on their hero. And it was like, all you've done is made everything special about you gone. You've put this <laughs> ROI message. And, and the reason they do this is because the macroeconomic environment, the CFOs are telling, tightening their belts and they're saying, we need to make sure we're only going to buy SaaS products that really move the needle. And so when the CSO or the CFO keeps killing the deal, all these companies are like, well, we need to lead with the ROI message. But they all forgot that the CFO was not the one who went on their page in the first place. So everyone overnight swapped out all their differentiation, swapped out all their compelling things, swapped out all the ways that made them amazing and just led with... The story of the last six months. Yes, led with (laughs) boost your ROI by blah, blah, blah. And now every single company looks the same and it's made it 10 times harder for the user and it's way less customer centric. And the CFO is still going to kill the deal because if they didn't get convinced by a salesperson showing them case studies, making the passionately making the appeal in the call, having it on the website that they're never going to look at is not going to move the needle. So I, I actually think like, you know, this is kind of a long tangent, but it's a soapbox for me. But back to your original question, sharing the capabilities and the features makes sense in the context of what people actually shop for. If I know that I need a product-led sales platform, tell me why would I pick your product and sales platform over the other ones? And that really is the features and the capabilities. No, I'm a huge fan of Ahrefs for doing this. They're like, one thing that I really love about them, I've said this in so many places and I absolutely love to say this, is because 
even before you go ahead and sign up the product, everybody knows how to use the product. That's the kind of storytelling. Like it could be as simple as, hey, do you want to build backlinks? Here's how you go about building backlinks. And then everything is told from the product standpoint. It's like, you know that the backlink, you know that HRFs is not going to give you the backlinks, but the entire story revolves around that. Yep, yep. And we actually, the funny <laughs> thing too is we say, it took us like maybe a year and a half to figure this out, even with our own services, where we, we basically were like, if we're selling expertise-based service, maybe it would be helpful if we shared our expertise ahead of time so that they weren't just like, I just have to trust you that you know what you're talking about. That if you just share it ahead of time, they'll say, oh, I can see they know what they're talking about because they've literally been sharing with me for the last six to 12 months of all the ways that they would approach these problems. And, and it's no different for a product, right? If you just keep saying, I'm going to boost your revenue, I'm going to save you money, and you never say how, you sound like the cold emails that we all hate where they're like, <laughs> hey, are you interested in closing 800 deals a month? Hit me up. And you're like, who are you? What are you going to do? Like, and then they were, if you don't respond, they say, I guess closing 800 deals is not a priority <laughs> to you. And it's like, that was never the issue. The issue was, I don't know what you're going to do. So I don't trust that you could give me that outcome. Exactly. No, I absolutely love this. Awesome. All right. So that brings us to uh, the second half of the podcast, uh, which we call the rapid fire section. This is more like a game show where I'm going to shoot five pointed questions at you. The questions might be short. The answers need not be, so you can speak whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Love it. I'm ready. All right. Here we go. Question number one. You say that 80% of your marketing effort should be focused on demand gen and only 20% on demand capture. Now, I have a lot of tangents behind this, but why do you say that? A couple different reasons. And I actually would maybe even increase those percentages. I might even say 90-10 since I originally said that. Uh, I think that really the long-term play of owning a space in the customer's mind is a long-term game. And so a lot of the early wins around demand capture come from people who are already shopping. They already are evaluating. Yeah. Um, so I actually think that there's a really big opportunity for almost all SaaS companies, at least the ones that we talk to. It seems like everyone is competing for that problem or uh, even solution-aware group. And I like to joke around that it's all these new SaaS startups that have VC backing, and they're all just targeting everyone who follows Elena Verna on LinkedIn. It's the same group of people. They all, it's the same little. And so they're like, oh, the competition is so fierce. You know, like there's so many competitors where it's like, do you know that there are actually more people in the world who could buy this than that tiny little sub segment of people on LinkedIn? And so the really strong companies that I see are targeting whole segments, industries that are maybe more legacy, but are, would love the product. And what that means is taking the time to generate demand, to educate, to help uh, through content, through ads, through um, workshops, through podcasts, webinars, all the different things, right? All that effort to slowly win over a group of people who was not quite aware that they even had the problem and then moving them through that by the time they get ready to buy, there's not even another possible person they would ever think about going to than you. And like me and Rob, we like to say like, this is the strategy that we've taken, right? We have spent yeah. a year posting content about our frameworks and approaches and people who were trying to solve these problems of how do I write my homepage? 
they would have never thought to go to a product marketing consulting company. They would have, that would have never been in their radar. But because we've done this hard work of demand generation over time, we've created this new demand for a group of people who would never have considered our our solution. And now we have a like a, a, a consistent influx of founders who want to work with us. And there really isn't a competitor. There's no one that they're like, well, we were thinking about you, but we like sometimes we've we've heard people say we were evaluating between you and like a general purpose marketing agency. But the choice is like it's not even it's not even a choice at that point because it's like, well, we could go with these people that do a lot of these things or you guys who do this one thing that I'm trying to solve extremely well. And you've convinced me over time that you do it well. So I also agree with people like Chris Walker who say when the CFOs or whoever or CMOs immediately cut like marketing in downturns, it's going to cause all these issues because what they're cutting is the creation of more pipeline down the line. So if you really focus on this short, smaller group that's ready to buy now, you're going to run out of that pretty quick. Now, to, to, to counter that, startups that are trying to get off the ground, sometimes it is better to just start with the people who are ready to buy um, because it's such a long-term game. So if you're, if you're bootstrapped and you have dwindling one, runway, you need to get clients and people today. So you actually should just target the people who are already thinking the way you think and try to position yourself against whatever the competitor might be. But um, almost immediately, the vast majority of the effort should be on convincing these new newer groups of people, not even convincing necessarily, but just generating awareness that your type of solution exists, that it is a viable solution to the problem that they have. Um, and it's a way better solution than the other people that they're maybe evaluating. Yeah, no, absolutely love it. In fact, when I look back, um, that's exactly how SaaS Prince even started, right? So um, I did not write a single blog post. I did not even have a website for three months. All I did was starting a podcast first and posting on LinkedIn. And none of the guests invited were my target clients. It's just the listeners are my target clients. And things started coming inbound. But it's, it, it takes some amount of guts to say and conviction to say that, yes, this is going to work. But, you know, at the same time, there is also this uh, stick behind you to say that, hey, are you going to make some revenue at the end of this yeah. month or not? <laughs> yeah, 100%. And we actually, the, the other benefit of this, I know this is the lightning round and now <laughs> made it way longer than <laughs> not very lightning, but um, the other benefit too is that when you lead with demand gen, when your demand gen is several levels ahead of your product strategy, a lot of times you will uncover whole new things that the, the customers and people are looking for. Because you're out there beating the drum with content and different pieces, you're gonna find new opportunities and problems. So so like we even say, like with me and Rob, our product strategy, we do services, but they're very productized. So our product strategy is several months behind uh, our content strategy in the sense that we led with content first to figure yes. out exactly where the product should go. Um, and now we have longer term strategy now that we've kind of figured out what our niche is going to be. But it very was it was very much led by putting ourselves out there, trying to help people first and figuring out where is the need biggest and then pointing the service or if you were in the product world, pointing the product towards what's actually resonating most. Yeah, yeah. No, I know I, I can take this question into multiple levels and I know we can speak for a couple of hours, but I'm going to go to question number two now. All right. So if you have to pick one or two factors that makes a product hard to market, what would those two factors be? Yeah. Sometimes it can be very technical in the sense that it's like, 
you know, deep tech AI and uh, ML and and we've worked with a couple blockchain companies and they're living in a whole different universe and <laughs> like it's a whole different world. So sometimes it could be hard to market if you're selling to people a very technical solution and those people lack just even the basic understanding. So we see this a lot with blockchain companies trying to sell into traditional f- uh, financial services companies. They're like, our our technology would help you do what you're trying to do way better than what you're doing. But there's such a gap in the just understanding of the basic concepts. So that's usually one piece that's harder to market. And then another piece that's hard to market is really when they're extremely horizontal, the use cases and the variations on company type and persona are so vast, it can be very hard to find the right story to unite all of those things. But actually, this is kind of a, a secret. We like to say this. Um, and even we've had this tagline for a while. We help founders uh, market hard to market products. So we don't say this directly, but a lot of times what makes a product hard to market is the founder doesn't want to make difficult decisions that would make it easy to market. And the lack of decision making of taking a stand of saying we're going after this market, not this market is what makes it hard to market. So there's actually a flip side that you could say most hard to market products are actually pretty easy to market if the founder was willing to make some hard calls. Um, but they're not sometimes. Uh, and sometimes for good reason. They might not have the data yet to make it. And so they live in this place where it's extremely difficult to explain um, and people don't really get it because they're trying to talk to 25 different segments and use cases all at once. Yeah, no, brings a lot of uh, memories from past experiences. I love that. All right, so question number three. What is the first word that comes to your mind when you read drive revenue on a homepage? Oh man, uh, puke maybe vomit uh yeah i mean like and and i kind of i kind of covered this earlier like the reason that we got here and i totally get it and i I, and i feel for the people but again i just go back to people aren't shopping for kpis they're shopping for solutions that they have predetermined they think will get them to the kpi and so be customer centric meet them where they're at you know and the person you're trying to convince that you're really going to move the needle is not the person on the page the champion who's going to help the even in an enterprise sale the champion is gonna be the one bringing you to all the different departments to sell the solution and say we need to do this arm them with the information about roi and we love the example of um reforge so reforge you probably know product management growth upskilling uh resource they target the end user but the end user is usually not the buyer because they'll convince their manager hey can you sponsor my reforge program it's going to make me way better so imagine you're trying to convince a uh, growth product manager or a whatever, right? That they should get Reforge. You're not going to make the business case to that person, right? Oh, we're going to make you 75% more productive and 85% more innovative. Like no one cares about that. The end user champion is going to be like, what, what are you going to do for me? And they're like, I'm going to teach you how to do growth loops. I'm going to teach you how to build these activation, you know, all these different things that they talk about in Reforge. That's going to convince them. And then if you go to the shopping, like the checkout in Reforge, and you don't pay, they will hit you with an email that says, if you're trying to convince your boss to pay for Reforge for you, here's an email template you can give them. And it says, oh I'm going to be 85% more productive, 75% more innovative, and talks about all these numbers and metrics. And so it's it's that piece right there. It's don't put that message on the website because that's not who's going to come. Use that message later in the sales cycle or later even in the onboarding as you're trying to get other teams using it. So just hold off and remember, 
go for the champion. They're going to be the ones who need to convince, and they likely are not going to care about the ROI numbers. Love it. It it all boils down to, you know, um, at what stage, what story do we say? That's all it is, but it's not that easy. <laughs> yeah. It sounds easy, but yeah, it's, it's tricky to know. I can't tell every story in every place, and which stories do I tell where? That's like the art of the whole discipline of product marketing, right? It's telling yeah. the right message to the right people in the right time, which is easier said than done. So here's question number four. What is one SaaS brand that you recently came across and thought, wow, these guys really get product marketing? Yeah, great question. So me and Robert, uh, we were buying a bunch of different SaaS tools. So we were doing the buying cycle uh, pretty recently, like in the last month. And so the one brand that really stuck out to me was Mercury. So Mercury is a neobank that is aimed primarily at startups. And they make it very clear that that's who they're going after. It literally says it like on their page. We're for startups of, of all sizes. And then all the capabilities that they highlight, the fact that they insure you to $5 million, not 250000 like a lot of the regular banks do, that you can set up and get you know um, a card like instantly. And you can it, we integrate directly with Stripe. Like all the type of stuff that people in the startup ecosystem care about, they've put front and center on the site. And so when we even were saying, well, we work with startups and we're in tech, what what bank account should we use? It was the unanimous choice. Everyone was like, oh, you got to get Mercury. Mercury is great. Um, it does exactly what you need. So that positioning in product marketing is so strong where if they were like, well, yeah, we do startups, but we also do enterprises and we also do, you know, soccer moms who have minivans. And like if they were trying to do all of that, probably people wouldn't have said it immediately and so ubiquitous. And they were like, We've, we're going to carve out for this market and own it. And the product marketing shows up in a really clear way on their page, messaging wise, like you can totally uh, track with everything that they're that they're saying. So um, I, I like them a lot. Love that. You know, if I can summarize the last 40 minutes of conversation into, say, probably two to three words, it is it simply comes down to set the context right. Yeah, <laughs> that's really good. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah. I could, I could probably, yeah, we could yeah. probably edit down the whole podcast to just that that little sentence right there. Go. <laughs> no, I'm loving this conversation. All right, here's the final rapid fire. If I took away Figma from you, what is your next immediate option to explain all your product marketing frameworks? Yeah, so uh, yeah, for context of anyone listening, me and uh, Rob, our entire go-to-market strategy is around content. Um, specifically LinkedIn content. We share all of our frameworks and we do it in this uh, Figma design system that has a very cohesive look. Uh, we made like a lightweight one that has boxes and arrows and fonts and stuff so that we can create this visual identity that when people see that they're scrolling, they immediately know it's one of our posts. Um, we, we probably, if we lost Figma, we probably would have to go back to Miro which would be very sad. Miro's great, just very, you know, lots of people use it, so it's definitely less visual. I don't know if I could bring myself to use Illustrator again. I think I've left that part behind in my past. I'm not sure I'm quite ready to go back down to the Adobe rabbit hole of paying for the Creative Cloud every month. And, um, so I, I think we would probably do Miro. Right, so I thought you might probably say Canva is the close next, but... <laughs> Canva, that... Yeah, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe Canva's better, but Canva's also so uh, it's for a different group of people who don't want to customize that I'm like, at that point, I might as well just do Miro because it'll be easier. Thank you so much. We covered so much in the last 45 minutes or so. And um, I absolutely love the depth in which you go into each of these conversations with very specific examples that if I convert this entire conversation into notes, 
I'm like, hey, this is this is a book that I can directly bring to an organization and say, hey, let's implement this, 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 this. We are set. Absolutely love that. How do you do this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's honestly like a because me and Rob, we don't really come from like deep product marketing backgrounds. So like we when we came into product marketing, we approached it from first principles and we were like, okay, rather than just accepting, oh, this is the positioning Mad Lib that you should use, we had we had to step back and say like, okay, well, when people are talking about a benefit, what is a benefit? What is a feature? And we would spend hours and hours and hours across days and days and days debating these very rudimentary concepts of like, what would that actually mean if we were going to put the definition and it was mutually exclusive from a feature? And so we worked from the bottom up. And it's, so it's funny, almost all of our really big insights, we didn't even get until six, seven months into that process because the first six months were just just aligning on the language. What do these words mean? And that, and then we knew if we could get the base level atoms and molecules of this system together, then you can start building onto it. And so even a lot of our biggest insights happened in the last three months because we've been slowly building it up over time. Um, and we always try to anchor it with real examples. Well, how does this work? And then we'll, we'll we have a very good argumentative, uh, maybe that's not the right word, but like, you know, we, we debate a lot of these things. And so we'll basically put out an idea like a scientific theorem. And then the other person's job is basically to disprove it. So like if we say, it's always better to do lead with a uh, wedge, not a platform. The other person would say, well, what about ClickUp? What about, you know, and throw the examples. And we 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 try to make our, our frameworks more robust like that. And then also even our business model, we picked rather than doing one project with a company for three to six months, we said, we actually want to get the framework better. So we picked a business model, productized services that would allow us to work with startup after startup after startup. So when we meet with a company in the morning, we'll meet with the company in the morning, do a workshop. We'll have a bunch of learnings and then we'll have a different workshop with a different company in the afternoon. So we're doing multiple of these workshops per day, per week. And so the learning cycles are so much faster than if we were doing long-term advising, um, uh, fractional product marketing or anything like that. So we picked the business model to make the framework as best as it could possibly be. Because that is our long-term goal. Long-term product strategy is like everyone in the world who's a product marketer is using this framework, right? Founders are all using it. And, and we've gotten it to the point where it's so understandable and so robust that it, it's, a, it's a discipline. And like, I like to compare it to like when Agile came on the scene or um, any of these like Scrum and things like that that get adopted by huge groups of people in product management and engineering. Like there isn't a thing like that for product marketing. And a lot of go-to-market roles, there just isn't a common language that everyone can say. So that's like our long-term is we're trying to build that and doing it through these workshops, angering on website. That's just sort of the business model that gets us where we can take a swing every single day, sometimes multiple times per day with different companies. Yeah, no, I love it. You're almost like uh, chat GPT of product marketing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Flush GPT. We could maybe rebrand. Re Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Anthony. I absolutely enjoyed every single minute of this conversation. And there is so much that we could take away. And for all the listeners, uh, you know, if they want to connect with you, um, what is your best preference that they can connect with you? Where? Yeah. Um, if you want to just chat, you know, get, get connected, LinkedIn for sure. Um, if you wanted to work with us, you could shoot me a LinkedIn DM or my partner, or you could go straight to our website. That's probably the fastest if you're like, we need, we want to work with these guys on our website or something like that. But yeah, I connect with virtually everyone who uh, sends me a request. I DM almost every person who adds me. So uh, yeah, happy, happy to meet anyone. And do you have a parting message for all our listeners? Uh, I think I would say don't underestimate 
the product marketing piece of the puzzle. Uh, and don't think like, when should we really start thinking about either hiring a product marketer? If you're asking that question, you're already too late. Uh, it should have been one of your founders. That's that's our <laughs> take. No, this is awesome. And uh, you're so right that uh, I have not come across a single organization in my experience that the first marketer that they hired was a product marketer. <laughs> so It's rare. It's rare. And I, I think it's the smartest hire for the first one for the majority of organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. We had lots of fun. I'm going to go listen to this a couple of times and possibly convert this into a blog post as well. So really, really appreciate your time, Anthony. Love it. Thanks so much for having me.